Hey everybody, it's Dave Bjork here, research evangelist and patient advocate, and welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast, where we interview people in life sciences who are what I call brilliant but not famous. Well, I always say that many of them are famous, but uh, and they're very well known and respected in their field. Uh, but maybe my next door neighbor might recognize, might, might not recognize their name. So, um, welcome to the show. And today, I'm I'm excited to have um, Becca Heist, um, a medical oncologist at Mass General Hospital and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's a she has a medical degree from Harvard Harvard Medical School and a master's in public health from Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She did her residency at Mass General Hospital and her fellowship at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Her research focuses on tumor genetics and targeted therapy in lung cancer, and she leads clinical trials of novel agents in lung cancer. So I'm super excited, as you can imagine, to have her on my show. So welcome to the show, Becca. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Awesome. Um, I'd like to start off by asking you about your uh, your research focus on clinical trials of novel agents. Uh, you're part of the Termeer Center um, at MGH, and you lead and participate in first in human studies of targeted agents across a broad range of tumor types, uh, with a particular focus on lung cancer. Um, so can you tell us about your work? I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I think at the basis of all of the work that I do and all of the work that the Tremere Center does um, is really trying to get better treatments for our patients. Um, and, and that really is what we're trying to do and trying to offer. Um, so there have been huge improvements in lung cancer treatment over the last years and decades. Um, and, and there's always room to improve. And so that is kind of the goal of what we do. Um, so with the Tremere Center, the Tremere Center is kind of structured in a way that um, it's investigational therapeutics, mostly first in human studies. Um, and there are investigators from each different disease type. So lung, GI, um, GU, et cetera. And we really try to focus on, you know, what are the best kind of scientific, biologic, new um, ways of treating cancers? How do we get them to people? Um, and then kind of evaluate how they're working. Um, so it's a really exciting place to be working. It's a great um, team that works there. Um, and, and, you know, within that group and with the lung cancer group at MGH as well, my focus is really on bringing new patients to lung cancer. New, new drugs to lung cancer patients. Mm -hmm. So is it uh, primarily focused on phase one trials that you're in your work? Yeah, it's mostly phase one trials, um, what we call first in human trials. So drugs that in the lab and in preclinical models have looked really interesting and we're interested in trying to see how that works in people. So, you know, phase one trials, uh, one part of what they do is try to kind of find the right dose level in people so that we understand what are the side effects and how is this tolerated? And phase one trials now also, for the most part, are also really looking at kind of in various expansions of different cohorts or groups of people, um, what kind of signal of activity are we getting? Mm -hmm. um, one of the really interesting things I thought actually, um, and Dan Yurik, who is the leader of the Tremere Center, showed some data yesterday at a meeting I was at. Um, you know, historically, phase one trials actually had a bit of a bad rap because you know, historically, they were trial, trials where were you looking for the right dose? And, you know, the mantra was, well, you know, you can't really expect benefit. Um, but I think one of the really amazing things about the way clinical trials have changed is that as we get better at bringing drugs um, to the first in human trials, and as we get better at selecting patients for them, there is benefit. 
Um, and he showed data over the last five years of people treated within the Tremier Center. Um, and at least one in three had what's called either a PR or partial response, which is like significant shrinkage of tumor burden um, or a stable disease that was lasting at least six months. I mean, these are, you know, numbers and kind of um, responses that we think are clinically meaningful, you know, um, for our patients. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about working at, at a place like MGH and in the Tamir Center that um, these first in human trials, we really do think that um, they're testing out new theories and ideas and science, um, but they but the ultimate goal is helping people and, and we are able to do that. That's really exciting. And so is that is that um, a, a, a new trend with phase one trials or is I think so. You know, I think that more and more, um, I mean, some of it just has to do with the drugs themselves. You know, 20 years ago, it was um, uh, the, the technology that we have now in terms of targeted therapies, immunotherapies, um, even targeted chemotherapies, like let's say an antibody drug conjugate where you're attaching a chemo to an antibody. Um, uh, the technologies and the drug development is, has, you know, really leapfrogged over the last decades. So I think the drugs are better. Um, another key aspect is that many, for many of these drugs, you're really kind of trying to select and find people who are most likely to respond. And so it, it's not just one thing for everybody. It's, you know, finding the right drug for the right person and trying to match that up so everyone gets what they need. Um, so I, I do think that's a change in the way phase one studies have been. And, you know, now when we think about a phase one study, we're really thinking about, yeah, there's the part where we're trying to find the right dose and really evaluate the side effects and the toxicity. And then most phase one studies also have a part where they're enrolling more numbers of people as they learn scientifically about, you know, who's more likely to respond and things like that, trying to get a sense of, so if we treat, you know, X number of people, um, with the dose that we think is going to be a reasonable dose, what what are we getting? What, what kind of responses are we getting? Wow, that's exciting! And I have a friend of mine who has been treated at Mass General for many years, um, and she has um, metastatic stage four lung cancer, and she's in her I believe she's in her fifth clinical trial, which is it's pretty amazing. remarkable, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So, well, and of course, um, I'm a lung cancer survivor, as you know, and I was treated at Mass General. So, mm -hmm. uh, I'm certainly a great, uh, grateful patient. And my wife also works at, at MGH. Um, I'm curious to know, like, how your interest um, ended up in, in lung cancer. And by the way, thank you so much for your commitment to lung yeah. cancer. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was a little serendipity, actually. Uh, when I was training as a fellow, there were some patients that really kind of stuck with me um, that happened to have lung cancer. Um, and so I, I was really kind of uh, uh, struck by their course and, and them, really, um, and, and that kind of spurred my interest. Um, I think luckily enough, there's been so much development scientifically within lung cancer treatment that it's been kind of a whirlwind ride over the last decade um, with so much happening um, in terms of different treatments. But it all began with um, some patients that really kind of spoke to me when I was training um, and made me want to kind of pursue that. Yeah. And speaking of um, all the great things that have happened over the, in the last decade, particularly in the, even the fast, last five years, yeah. um, there's been so many advances in precision medicine and targeted therapies in lung cancer. And what, what are you most excited about? And, and, and what do you think this is going to look like five years from now? 
you know, I think the most exciting thing is just being able to tell a patient who is newly diagnosed, hey, there's so much, you know, uh, and so much is changing. And what I'm talking about today is going to be different five years from now. So, you know, I, I think the most exciting things are in lung cancer, as you know, there's just been this upheaval um, where now we really have three prongs when we're, when we're talking about systemic treatment. So for people with advanced disease, um, uh, we really have three prongs of treatment. One was chemotherapy. Um, and chemotherapy is good therapy. I, I think there's kind of a little bit of a writing off of chemo sometimes, um, but chemo, um, there are newer chemo agents, which I think in general are much better tolerated than some of the older ones. And the supportive care around chemo has gotten a lot better as well. And chemotherapy is definitely a part of most people's um, regimen at some point. So chemo is one arm, another arm is targeted therapy, and a, a third arm is immunotherapies. And so for targeted therapy, really, you know, what we now understand is that um, it's not enough to just say lung cancer. We really want to know what's the genomics, what in the tumor genetics, and these aren't inherited genetics, these are in the tumor, um, really is making the cancer behave like a cancer. And for some cancers, not all, but some, there's really one switch that when that gene gets mutated, that is what is making the cancer be the cancer. And if you can figure out how to turn off that switch with a targeted pill, um, then you can be very effective at killing cancer cells and helping people live really significantly longer with the disease. Um, and so that's been one big revolution, you know, and I would say, you know, when that started about 10, 15 years ago, we were really kind of focused on um, uh, targets like EGFR, ALK, ROS, um, that, and, and there are um, now kind of really good understanding of not only what's the best first treatment, but then what happens afterwards when disease grows after initial response, what do you do then? Why is it becoming resistant? And that's been a big focus of research and, and more development of kind of next line drugs. Uh, and that kind of is broadening. There are more and more um, that fall under the umbrella of targeted drugs. So within the past year, um, there have been more approvals for targets like RET, MET, NTRAC was probably a year ago, um, but many more approvals as we understand better how to kind of subdivide lung cancer into these various targets. Um, and, and then the other big, the third one that I mentioned before, the third arm of, of, of how we treat is immunotherapy, which has really been kind of just completely upended the way we think about it. Somebody was saying the other day, you know, we get, you know, we start with immunotherapy and the question is, do we add chemo or not? Which is just, a, you know, completely on its head compared to how we were thinking about this five years ago. Um, and so immunotherapy we know has great benefit from, you know, pretty much all of our patients and whether it's alone or combined with chemotherapy, that's how we're starting as first line therapy for many of our patients. And there's also a lot of work being done there to try to figure out, you know, so the whole point of immunotherapy is trying to get your immune system to get activated, to recognize your cancer and fight your cancer. Um, and um, you know, for, for people where they're not getting that benefit from immunotherapy, a whole lot of research to try to figure out how can we get that tumor cell more identifiable to the immune system so the immune system can actually attack it. Um, and there are lots of different combinations, um, vaccines, all sorts of ways to try to prime um, the cancer and the immune system um, uh, to, to respond, the immune system so that the cancer responds. Um, and so that's another big area of focus. 
But all of those together, the chemo, the targeted therapy, the immunotherapy, that all means that we have so many more treatment options for our patients, which is just remarkable. And the conversation that we have when you know, you're sitting in clinic with somebody who's not newly diagnosed is just really different um, than what it was five years ago and certainly 10 years ago. Well, I can certainly speak to that because I was diagnosed 20 years ago and it's, I can't even ex express how different things are now. Yeah. You know, like with my friend who's in her fifth clinical trial, it's just, it's crazy. But of course I, I, I didn't have to have chemo. I was, I'm, I, that's why I live a life of gratitude because I had a lobectomy and, mm -hmm. and got great care at MGH from, from Doug Matheson, yes. my brilliant surgeon, yes. um, little plug in there for, for Dr. Yeah. Matheson. Um, but uh, so, and you're, you're so busy. I, I looked you up on PubMed and I found, I don't know, like 130 published articles or something. It's like a lot. And um, which is remarkable to me. Um, and one of them, the most recent ones I was reading about was about Kematinib. Kematinib, yeah. is that how you say mm -hmm. it? Um, can you tell me about that? Just a little bit about that research? Sure. So, so this is actually one of the new targets. And um, um, when I was talking about tumor genetics, one of the things that um, uh, has evolved is this finding that, that um, something called met exon 14 skipping is something that drives lung cancers. I think that one of the things that's uh, amazing is how um, clinical care can really benefit from the advances in science. And, you know, these, these, the, the met exon skipping mutations um, that cause um, essentially um, dropout of exon 14 from the met um, uh, receptor, um, these were known about 20 years ago but they're just very, very hard to find because they often um, end up in a sequence part of the DNA that's difficult to sequence. Um, and it was really as sequencing technology kind of exploded and became more easy to do, and you can look at the introns, that it became easier to find. And then really um, some of the advances in kind of DNA and RNA sequencing were, were, were enabled um, scientists to really be able to say, hey, this actually happens. And when we look at the tumor genome of cancers, we can actually see this happening and we think it's driving it. So, um, so, so um, with that finding came a whole flurry of activity of trying to see, okay, so if it's driving the cancer growth, can we inhibit it? Um, and, and so there are these MET inhibitors, which are these targeted pills that try to kind of block that MET signaling that for the patients with MET exon 14 skipping is really what's driving the cancer um, in terms of growing. Um, and so kipmatinib is a MET inhibitor. It's a potent selective MET inhibitor. And in the study that was recently published that I was a part of um, with, that, uh, with that drug, um, it showed really great activity, especially in the first line setting for people with MET skipping and lung cancer. Um, and based on that, kipmatinib is actually now FDA approved for the treatment of lung cancers with MET skipping. So that's super exciting, you know, to kind of um, have a drug that we think uh, um, uh, inhibits this target and, you know, is beneficial enough that now it is an FDA approved drug. That, that was a really kind of uh, amazing thing to be a part of. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that I take away from that too is um, the importance of testing everybody. So MET skipping is something that happens. It actually happens across all histologies of non-small cell lung cancer. Um, people actually tend to be a bit older who have it. The median age is kind of um, a little older than for some of the other targets. Um, it happens in never smokers. It also happens in former and current smokers. Um, and 
Um, as we kind of add each new target, the MET was one of them, RET is another one that's pretty recent. As we add each new target, you know, what's, what's really kind of critical that we think about is making sure that everyone who's newly diagnosed with lung cancer is getting the testing where they're looking for all of the potential targets, um, not just one or two, not just the ones that are kind of most established, but all of them. Um, because um, because the benefit, if you find it and can treat with one of these targeted therapies, is huge. Oh, and I'm so glad you brought that up because um, this 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 um, notion of every lung cancer patient get, having access to genomic testing is really something that uh, is important to me. And I'm going to be doing some more stories about it actually, uh, probably in January, about. Oh, you know, my passion for making sure that patients in a community setting get the same access that they get at a place like Mass General. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah most um, patients are treated in a community setting. And I think it's really important. It's, it's part of the diagnosis of lung cancer. So uh, it's critical. I'm so glad yeah. that you're going to be focusing on that. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited about that. And, you know, and you mentioned Rhett and, you know, my friends at Blueprint Medicine, I give a shout out to them because yeah. I've been following that for a couple of years. I've got some friends there and it's just so cool that, that they got yeah. that approval, um, yeah. you know, and, and are working with Genentech and Roche and it's just, yeah. you know, I, I am so over the moon excited about, yeah. about what's happening in the, in the field of research. So, um, so I'm curious to know, um, you know, I know you're an MD, but you also have a master's degree in public health, uh, which I think is awesome. Um, I, I, I know I told you my son um, has a degree um, his undergraduate degree in public health. Um, and uh, so why did you uh, decide to add that to your impressive uh, knowledge base and training? So, you know, I, I did that during fellowship, actually. And um, it was as I was kind of starting to do clinical trials and research on um, uh, both trials, as well as um, some clinical and translational research that um, really knowing how to understand data was something that I thought would be really important. Um, and uh, and part, not part of the, the degree is really kind of trying to focus on that. Um, so there is this program that's run out of um, HSPH where um, they take people who are in fellowship training in various specialties and in primary care who are interested in doing research and, and it, it used to be called, and I think it still is called clinical effectiveness, um, to really kind of try to um, take what we understand about public health and data and data analysis and apply it to um, studies, whether they're clinical trials or cohort studies or um, comparative studies, um, so that uh, the people who are kind of asking the clinical questions of the data can really be thinking about it also in a way that a data scientist is, so that you know, you're trying to eliminate the biases, trying to really kind of get accurate comparisons and things like that. So I, I thought it was incredibly helpful um, and just a different way to be thinking about things. You know, through med school, you're, you're learning a lot about, you know, biology and um, therapeutics and with the public health um, uh, kind of training, there's, there's more of a focus on kind of data analysis and I, th I thought that was an interesting take on things and really helped me during fellowships to try to kind of develop my ideas about how would I develop a study like that? If I wanted to study that question, you know, what kind of studies could I design and what would be the pitfalls of design of each one? And, and how would I best be able to answer the question that I want to get 
get at. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really cool. Um, and speaking of training, I, um, I have a, a, a friend of mine who's a researcher um, at Fox Chase, and we were talking the other day, and he was talking about how he uh, he loves to mentor, um, you know, the postdocs in his lab, and then yeah. and then watch them go off and start their own yeah. labs and and and, and um, bring goodness to the world. So uh, he he calls it he he sees he sees he calls it as the one of the last apprenticeships, you know, where he can actually you know teach these these uh, younger uh, scientists. Have there been any mentors or others that have great influence on you as you went through your training? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think uh, harkening back to way back in residency, actually, the, the idea of apprenticeship and mentorship actually made me think of him. Mort Schwartz was a great um, doctor at MGH, kind of legendary among the medicine um, residents. Um, and he, uh, one of the traditions at MGH used to be always that you wear a short coat. And in medicine, there's this like dynamic where if you're a short coat, short coat, you're a student. And if you wear a long coat, you're an attending and you finished your training. And more <laughs> and MGH residents um, always wore a short coat. And more Schwartz was this like renowned infectious disease specialist and um, just renowned um, physician uh, was, uh, was known to say, well, you know, I'm always a student and he always wore the short coat. And so I think part of um, uh, part of medicine is actually always that you're always a student, um, that things are changing, you have to learn new things, and um, the, the apprenticeship actually never ends. Um, uh, but uh, but he, he was kind of one, I think, really pivotal mentor. You know, within cancer, um, when I started fellowship, Tom Lynch was at Mass General, um, an amazing mentor to both me as well as many other people. Um, he was part of the original uh, EGFR story that really kind of broke open the whole targeted therapies field. And, you know, I think um, uh, uh, he made huge advances scientifically and also, you know, taught us all who trained with him um, so much about just how important it is to be focused on the patient and talking with the patient. And, um, and, um, and so I think he was a huge influence as well. Um, uh, more recently, Jeff Engelman was recently uh, head of lung cancer at MGH, um, and now he has gone to Novartis, actually. Um, but he also is just, uh, I think, to me, a really instrumental mentor and figure. Um, he, was, he was a basic scientist, but he also kept up a clinical presence. And, you know, I think what he did so well um, was he had this passion for understanding people's cancers. Um, and really kind of connected the clinic and the lab in a way that was extraordinary and enabled us to do things that I think, you know, um, th there was a time when doing repeat biopsies of patients was kind of like, oh, you can't do that, you know? Um, but, um, but that has actually enabled so much better understanding of what is actually going on with people's cancers. And so how can we treat that better? Um, and so he was, he was also a real, um, important figure I think as I trained and kind of developed. What a great culture uh, to be a part of you know and to and to build your career on you know I I mentioned my friend in the clinical trials earlier and her oncologist is um, Alice Shaw or was Alice yes. Shaw yeah uh -huh. and um, in some of my previous work I I worked at the National Foundation for Cancer Research and we funded we were one of the funders of Alice Shaw's work yeah yeah um, as well as Dan Haber by the way yes. and some others uh -huh. but um, I always found her to just be 
the, one of the most remarkable people because of uh, but hearing the relationship that she has with my friend yes. and, and the compassion and and you know yes. it's just it's just an amazing place that's why i love what i'm doing because i'm meeting all of these brilliant people because uh, of the of the work they're doing at these great institutions so um and speaking of um your uh, we go back to your training um when did you know that you wanted to be a doctor slash researcher and 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 what led you uh to oncology um you know i think it was kind of uh um probably it was a thread of things i think i, I think i really kind of made the decision during college um, growing up, I had a couple of close family friends who um, had uh, cancer. It was actually mostly pancreatic cancer, um, and, um, and and they had a big impact on me um, uh, uh, when I was pretty young, kind of, you know, in middle school and high school, um, just seeing them go through that process. Um, and then... Um, you know, I think uh, in college, I was actually a government and comparative religion major, and I was kind of just interested in a lot of different things, including, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, how governments and societies and religions kind of impact how people live their lives. And I think running through all of that was this thread of trying to understand, you know, um, what makes people tick, what motivates them, what's important to people. and. Um, and then ultimately, I think all of those kind of congealed into um, there, there are a few things that are as kind of universal as people's health. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a great unifier in many ways. Um, and everyone goes through, you know, periods of good health and poor health and how they kind of cope through that and, and deal with that is something that um, is obviously very individual, but it is a process that is for everybody. Um, and I ended up, I think, wanting to kind of not just think about people, but also act <laughs> and be with people as they were going through that process. And um, so medicine seemed um, like kind of the place where that happens. Um, and for oncology, I would say, you know, I think a lot of us who go into oncology, um, we're really interested in the science and the technology but we're also very interested in that connection with the patient. And it really is a very close relationship that you have with the patient and the family through a really kind of life altering time. Um, and I think that connection is something that as a field, I, oncologists are primarily made up of people where they, they wanna have that connection with that patient and that is important to them. Yeah. and and and. From a patient's perspective, I can, you know, I, I, I bring that perspective of that relationship with, you know, with the doctors and the nurses and all the, you know, the entire care team, you know, is really important. So I can see how that would be really rewarding to mm -hmm. be part of that. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned uh, middle school. One of my guests um, will be coming on later this month um, had mentioned to me that he's involved with uh, helping. He started a program in, in Atlanta to help. Uh, young girls get interested in science and mm -hmm. primarily like K to 12, but primarily middle school, which mm -hmm. I think is very cool because yeah. um, I, I served on the school board in my town for six yeah. years. And, and I was, that was one of the areas that I became very interested in, did a lot of research on, uh -huh. you know, what's a, you know, what's a middle school kid going through, you yeah. know, and I think anything to help get kids interested in science, you know, Absolutely. at that age is, is really cool. Right. Yeah, that is, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, has um, has COVID um, impacted your um, 
clinical trials. I know probably, I think I read that it, you know, at the very beginning, like in back in April, I think um, there was so much happening and, and it probably kind of hurt the enrollment and stuff, but can you yeah. give us kind of a brief uh, outline yeah. of what's, what's going on now? Yeah, so, you know, um, COVID had a huge impact, especially in the beginning of that first surge that was March and April. And, you know, the state of Massachusetts was shutting things down. Um, elective procedures were canceled um, at the hospital. Um, and what that meant for us also was we had to think about for trials, you know, ones that require or have optional biopsies. Can we really do that? Um, for trials where there might need to be like a inpatient admission afterwards for observation, can we do that? Um, and, um, and certainly uh, with the numbers of people with COVID who were extremely sick and what was going on at the hospital where many floors were being converted to kind of take care of patients with COVID and many new ICUs were actually being stood up. Um, it, it was a dramatic time for us. And, you know, we um, dramatically cut down our kind of accrual into trials, mostly because um, we couldn't do some of the things that we really needed to do to do the trial. Um, one of the big commitments though, and I um, work closely with a team of people who are involved in kind of leading the clinical research effort at MGH for the Cancer Center. One of the big commitments was that, you know, clinical trials for cancer are also um, really treatment um, for our patients. And um, it's not just an experiment, you know, it, it, it's treatment. And um, we were committed to, if we felt like the clinical trial treatment was something that was really gonna be disease altering or definitely life-saving, but also significantly disease altering for a patient that we needed to keep on enrolling those patients. And so we had to cut down because of what was going on with COVID in the state and at the hospital but we always had trials open and we were actually actively enrolling people onto trials where we felt like, you know, this is really treatment that the patient needs. There's not another good alternative right now and, um, and, and they need to get on this treatment. So that commitment on the part of the hospital, the cancer center, the administration, the docs, the nurses, the regulatory people, you know, we made that happen. Um, after the worst of the surge, things are really now back to normal. We are booming um, and um, uh, the clinical trials portfolio is um, very robust and we have kind of really the same kinds of accruals that we did beforehand. Um, there are some um, good things that actually came out um, of the, the pandemic. One of them is um, this kind of more widespread use of video visits and I think one of the things that that does is it enables um, kind of better reach of patients. So, you know, in the past, like if you're interested in a trial, you had to kind of travel, get yourself to Boston, get yourself to the hospital for an appointment. And now that video visits has become so kind of routine and a part of what we do, you know, I could be talking to somebody in Pennsylvania um, and just figuring out, hey, is there a trial that it's worth? I mean, you still have to come to physically do the trial, but for that first kind of, you know, is there something here that would be helpful to you? We should, you know, look and, and talk and see if there's a study that can be done on a video visit. And I think that the reach of um, what, uh, what patients can access really in terms of trying to figure out um, uh, what trial options there are for them. It has become much easier to do because um, of the ability to do virtual visits. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think that 
there are going to be some good things that come if we can say good because yeah. um, there's so much bad. But yeah, I agree that that it seems to be in some ways revolutionizing um, clinical trial experience yeah. uh, for patients. Yep, yep. And you know, the FDA made a lot of changes, which I think were really very helpful at the beginning and gave guidance saying, you know, if somebody's on a trial, you need to keep treating them. And if you can do, you know, safety labs locally and do a virtual visit, just ship them the drug, you know, for the drugs that are oral. Um, they made a lot of modifications to kind of just um, enable the continuation of people on studies, which was really important. And study sponsors also um, really worked with us to make that happen. So I think that that was really a plus. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's just really remarkable. Um, so now I'm going to ask you um, a little bit more personal question. I'm going to, outside of the work, and we've, we've heard a lot about your work, which is um, brilliant, I have to say. Um, but what else are you passionate about? Or what is something that people may not know about you uh, that you want to share with us? Um, I'm the mother of two very uh, active boys. They're 10 and eight. They're a ton of fun. And so I would say that, you know, other than work, I really spend time with my husband and family. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, you, you know, this as having kids, it, it's really a chance to relive your childhood again. So it's <laughs> really fun. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's been great. We, you know, um, we do a lot of uh, sports and trips together and just seeing things through their eyes has been a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, when we talked earlier about them getting ready for Christmas and, and uh, you know, I was telling you that, you know, my wife still treats our kids like they're 10 and eight. So, yes. um, so it's really a fun time. It's a fun time of year. Um, so, well, I, it's really been a pleasure, um, Becca, to have you on my show. Thank you so much. And, and um, you know, uh, I look forward to having more guests like you on the program. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed our visit with Becca Heist. And uh, you'll join us again for the next episode. Uh, but uh, Becca, again, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you. 